passion for God, and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Crosswinds Church. Again, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan, and I am the campus pastor for Crosswinds Church here in Spencer. And I want to say on behalf of everyone here at Crosswinds Church, uh, on behalf of all of our volunteers who were here early this morning setting up for our worship time this morning, uh, on behalf of our campus located up in Spirit Lake, and uh, on behalf of our staff, I just want to say that it is an absolute privilege to get to worship with you this morning as we are gathered for our first official service as a new church campus here in Spencer. Now, as you probably know, uh, we here at Crosswinds Church are just starting today, and for some of us, this is actually the end of a journey that began uh, almost four years ago, and it's been fascinating to see that God has brought us so far to finally get to this moment. Uh, It's been humbling to see Him work in so many ways, taking something that at one time was just a faint dream and now turning into the reality that we see around us today. And while in some aspects this may seem like we are at the end of the journey, the reality is this is just like mile marker one in a marathon. And so uh, this is really just the beginning of of what God is calling us to do here in Spencer. And I am so excited to see how God is going to use this church over the coming years as we seek to make Jesus famous in all that we do here in Spencer. Now, it seems appropriate that the launch of our church is taking place on Easter Sunday because Easter Sunday is the most important day of the year for the global church. As Christians, we try to live each and every day in the truth of the good news of the gospel. But on Easter, we intentionally set aside a day to celebrate And to look back upon the most important day in human history. You see, all of us, I think, would recognize that Easter is important. After all, that's why we're here this morning. But if we're real honest with ourselves, I think that we can admit that we often don't give Easter the time that it deserves. I think there are a couple reasons for why Easter can get uh, pushed off to the side uh, while something like Christmas is actually made into such a big deal. And first, I'm just being honest here. Uh... Let's, let's be real. It's, it's hard to figure out when Easter is. I honestly don't know how people figured out when Easter was or took place before Google. In fact, I've had seven years of theological education. I still have no idea when Easter is each single year. You know, with Christmas, we always know it's going to come on December 25th every single year. But with Easter, sometimes it's in March. Sometimes it's in April. Sometimes it's freezing outside. And sometimes it feels like it's in the middle of summer. Trying to figure out when Easter comes is a little bit like daylight savings times. Sa- saving time. It can, it can sneak up on us and all of a sudden we're like, whoa, Easter is here already? Second, and I think far more importantly, uh, I think that we are drowning in a sea of information overload. You see, we live in the information information age where if you aren't plugged in, then frankly, you're left out. And an unbelievable amount of information is produced every single minute. And about the same time, uh, same amount of time that it took for me to say welcome just a few minutes ago until about right now, here's about how much information has been produced and consumed. And that same amount of time, about 504 million emails were written 
Over 2 million Google searches were done. Over 2 million Facebook statuses were updated. Almost 300,000 tweets were created for those of you who are in the Twitter, uh, Twitter sphere. Over 75 hours of video were posted to YouTube. And over 12 million text messages were sent. That is a ton of information that's flying around each second, begging us for attention. No wonder we feel overwhelmed, bogged down, crazy busy, and unable to concentrate. Everyone around us is giving us information that they think is valuable and important. And when everything is seen as important, the reality is nothing is all that important. It's easy to see how something something like Easter can sometimes fall through the cracks and get less time than it deserves falls away by the wayside because everything else that is vying for our attention. We can get confused by this information overload, giving more things to time, uh, giving more time to things that deserve less. And maybe for some of you this morning, that's where you find yourself. You know that Easter deserves more time, but you're guilty of being focused on other things. I, I know that I'm guilty of that. For the past several weeks, I've fought the temptation to not make this day, this Easter celebration, just about the launch of our church. Now, for some of you, you may not know anything about Easter, and so all of this is just news to you. For others, you may know that Easter has something to do with Jesus and has something to do with an empty tomb, but you don't know much more than that. And still, for others of you, you may be a professing Christian, and you know the significance of Easter, the significance of the resurrection, and how it has made you a Christian, has raised you from the dead in Christ Jesus. But you may be wondering what on earth this has to do with you today. Now that you're a Christian. You see, that's where this morning's text comes in. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a book in the New Testament. It was written by uh, one of Jesus' followers named Paul. And in the passage we're studying, Paul... Paul does an incredible job of sorting through all of the information that's saturating his culture and just gives the people the basics. In a world of 500 million emails... Paul just gives us one single thing to focus on. Jesus. Some people actually call this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning the naked gospel because it is the most basic form of the gospel that we know. In fact, many scholars today say that that this is probably an ancient creed. One of the first ever creeds that was written by Christians and that declared the good news of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. This creed takes everything out. It takes out our thousands of years of of discussions on Christianity. It removes our cultural biases and it gets rid of our own personal experiences and just gives us the few essential things we need to know. And that's what Paul's verses here are telling us this morning. What are the essentials? I'm being bombarded by information everywhere I go. And in the church, it just seems like we just change the language and make it more Christian. What are the essentials? And Paul tells us these essentials by retelling the story of scandalous grace. It's one that many of you have probably heard before. But it's one that we must remind ourselves of daily because it is so counter-cultural. See, Paul tells us this story uh, by answering three questions for us. First, what is the scandalous gospel? 
And then second, why should we believe this gospel? And then finally, why is this gospel good news? And that's really going to be our roadmap map this morning. That's how we're going to follow through this text and those three different questions that Paul answers. And uh, so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Um, but before we jump into our text, let's go ahead and take a, a brief moment just to ask for God's presence to be with us in prayer. So please pray with me. God, we are so grateful for your presence with us this morning. God, we are thankful that your spirit reigns in this place, in the midst of our worship, in the midst of our fellowship, in the midst of our worship through hearing your word. And God, as we celebrate the truth of your resurrection this morning, I pray that you would come and meet us here and that you would reveal more of yourself to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, then the passage should be written uh, in your sermon notes, which are found in your bulletin. And uh, it should also be up on the screen right here behind me that you can follow along. So I, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I, was for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, in this first section, Paul gives us the answer to the question, what is the gospel? In other words, if you're not a Christian and you're just trying this whole church thing out, you may be thinking, all right, I keep hearing him make mention of this gospel. What on earth does that mean? Translate your Christianese into normal English for me. And that's what Paul does here in these first four verses. First, gospel literally just means good news. It's, it's actually taken from a Greek word that originally had no Christian meaning, Christian connotation with it uh, before Christianity came into existence. So when Caesar would come back from conquering a new distant land for the Roman Empire, uh, the gospel or the good news of his victory would ring throughout the streets of Rome. And in the same way, when Paul speaks of the gospel that he preached to the people in Corinth, he's just saying, remember that good news that I told you. Don't forget that. Hold on to it. If you were to gather every single jewel, every precious metal, every single ounce of currency in the world, if you were to gather together all of the most breathtaking sights in the world, the, the Grand Canyon, the, the Swiss Alps, the, the islands of the South Pacific Ocean, if you were to gather all those things together and compare their value to the value of this gospel, it would be like a raindrop in comparison to the vastness of the ocean. Don't forget this gospel because it is so, so valuable. See, after referencing the gospel in verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds us of what this gospel is. And that's where we're going to camp for a while this morning. And what we're going to see is that Paul really tells us four 
truths about the gospel here in verses 3 and 4. And these truths are vitally important to who we are as Christians. In fact, I would go as far to say that without believing these truths wholeheartedly, it's impossible to be a Christian. No ands, no ifs, no buts. So what are these these truths? Well, first, the, the first truth that Paul tells us is that we have sinned. Ugh, some of you may be saying, is this the, really how this guy is going to start this morning? I mean, it's, come on. This is the reason why I haven't been in church for years. And now I come back. How dare you say that? I'm not all that bad. Well, bear with me for a little bit longer, if you will. Let's go ahead and define what it means to sin. What is sin? Is sin not following God's commandments? Is it doing the wrong things? Is it being selfish? Well, yes, the Bible tells us that each and every single one of these things is sinful, but that doesn't really address the root definition of sin. I think it's best to think of sin as any time where we value something that is not God more than God himself. So, for example, if you were to take alcohol and view it as more valuable than God, that is sinful. If you were to take revenge and think that that revenge was worth more or was more valuable than God, then that's sinful. If we were to even take something good like our family and say that you valued it more than God, that is sinful. Okay, so, so what's the big deal? Let's say I play along with you for a little bit and use your definition of sin. So what, what's the big deal? Well, sin is a big deal because of what it does to us. You see, sin prevents us from living the life we were meant to live because it kills us. And it not only kills us in the future, sometimes 70 or after 70 or 80 years of life or so, if we're lucky, but it kills us right now. See, God has great plans for his creation, plans that we are unable to partake in because of our rebellion against God. See, that's, that's really the key word this morning. When we value other things more than God, we're rebelling against the way that he set things up. Ephesians 2 tells us that each and every human being on the face of the earth is dead, dead right now because of sin. And because we're dead, we can't make ourselves better. We can't do anything really because, you, well, you guessed it, because we're dead. Some of you may be thinking, well, Jordan, I thought you said the gospel meant good news. Where I come from, finding out that I'm dead is not exactly good news. In fact, I would consider it to be bad news, and I don't really like bad news. But not wanting to hear bad news doesn't mean that bad news isn't true. And if it is true, what we're saying, if, if what the Bible says about us and our bad condition right now, if it's really that true then we might want to listen to what it says about how we can make ourselves better. Let's imagine for a minute that you have uh, cancer. Now, for some of you, uh, unfortunately, you don't have to think of this, imagine too hard because maybe you have cancer right now or maybe, a, uh, maybe you had it in the past or maybe a friend or a family member has it and has passed away from cancer. But let's let's say that uh, you have cancer and you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, I have some terrible news for you. Uh, uh, we've diagnosed you with cancer. 
Now, in that situation, what what if you were to say to the doctor, I don't believe you, and you were just to walk out? Would that mean that you didn't have cancer? No, of course not. In that situation, all you're doing is avoiding the diagnosis. And when we avoid the diagnosis, we're ultimately avoiding the cure. That's the second truth the the gospel uh, the gospel that Paul shares with us this morning how we can make things better between us and God how we can get rid of this wicked sinful state the fact that we are spiritually dead and make things better and that's this that Christ has died see unlike many other religions today Christianity stands apart because it's about an actual historical event it's not a set of rules or laws that we have to follow like Judaism or Buddhism or, or excuse me Judaism or Islam it's not a mystical quest without much guidance like Buddhism or Hinduism it is at its core a love story between God and humanity and standing at the center of this story is the news that Christ died See, for many people, it's not all that remarkable that about 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus died. After all, every single person who has ever existed has died at some point. And unfortunately, many of those people who have died in the history of, of, of the world were murdered. And even still, of that subsection of people who were murdered, even there's a, there's a large portion of them who were murdered even though they were innocent. Death is just a part of life. So why is Jesus' death such a big deal to Christianity? Well, Jesus' death is significant because of what it means. You see, Jesus' death was an act of substitution in our place. As we saw before, each of us was dead in our sins because we had rebelled against God. And in spite of that act of treason against God, he decided that he was going to make a way for us to be restored into relationship with him. And he didn't just think of any way. He decided to come himself to bridge the gap between us, sinful humanity, and him, pure and holy God. See, the death of Christ is so significant to the gospel because for those who believe, it lifts the sentence of judge, judgment off of us. You see, some religions like Islam believe that Jesus never really died. Uh, actually, Islam teaches that Jesus never died on the cross because one of God's holy prophets could not die in such a shameful way. So instead, they believe that God actually pulled a fast one on the, the Romans and the Jews. And instead of having Jesus die, they, they had uh, at the last minute, Jesus' stunt double came in and died on the cross for him. But Islam misses the most important, crucial fact of Christianity. Without the cross, there is no salvation. And without salvation, there is no hope. Friends, the death of Christ was on your behalf so that you might have the chance to live the life that God intended for you to live, one in relationship with him. And third, the gospel tells us that Christ rose. See, just like every single person in human history, Jesus died. But like no other person in human history, Jesus didn't stay dead. And here in verse 4, Paul proclaims the glorious truth of Easter. That Jesus' death wasn't the end of the story. I have a sister who works as a newspaper editor down in Florida. 
And she frequently likes to text me and uh, just tell me how much nicer the weather is there than it is here. So I'm actually really for- looking forward to the next uh, uh, the next few months where we're going to have those two days, you know, that are actually going to be better than they are down in Florida. So I can say, ha, I gotcha. But in addition to texting me about the weather, she also likes to text me um, articles that are being run in the paper that she edits as the newspaper editor. And uh, she frequently likes to send me uh, editorials or opinion articles that are written by uh, various pastors in the community that she she lives in. And uh, so just a few days ago, uh, she sent me one of these. And she does it to get because she likes to see my reaction and how I'm going to respond to seeing these things. And so that's what she did a few days ago. And uh, she sent me this article. That was by, written by a pastor in that community uh, who basically said that the resurrection doesn't matter. All that matters is the cross. Is this pastor true? Is he right? Does, does the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead but rather rose three days later really matter to us? After all, it seems like that substitution thing that I mentioned earlier The whole thing with Jesus' death on our behalf so that the judgment of sin is lifted off of us, that seems more important. I mean, it's great that Jesus rose from the dead, don't get me wrong, but does it really matter? A thousand times, yes. Without the resurrection, we would have been stuck in uncertainty. How could we have known whether God had accepted Jesus as a sacrifice on our behalf? How could we have known whether we were considered to be his children or not if there was no resurrection? How could we have known that God had defeated the grave if he had stayed dead? How else could we have known that the death had been defeated if Jesus had stayed dead? How could we have known that, how could we have had hope that we too would one day conquer sin and death if Jesus didn't conquer them through his resurrection? Friends, the good news of Good Friday is not good news without the rejoicing of Easter Sunday. We cannot just pick one or the other and try to separate them and say, we only need the cross or we only need the resurrection. My mind is instantly drawn to to a passage from Revelation 5, which a scene in heaven is described saying, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." Through his resurrection, Jesus proclaims victory over death. We know that he is one because he overcame. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus matters. Finally, Paul tells us one final truth about what this gospel is, and that is that God is in charge. Notice what Paul says here twice. He uses this phrase, in accordance with the scriptures. See, God has had the the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ as a part of his plan from the very beginning. 
God wasn't caught off guard with the death of Jesus and just decided to to make it a the make a mo, make the most of a bad situation. God didn't decide halfway through Jesus's life that he was going to change the game plan. God knew what he was doing by telling us about it through his words hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus's death and resurrection. Let's just look at a couple of these passages that speak uh and look forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The first one is from Genesis chapter 3 verses 15 verse 15. And this is a story uh, where it's actually a judgment being proclaimed on the serpent after he caused Adam and Eve to sin. It says, I will put enmity between you, the the serpent or the devil and the woman, uh, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. First Corinthians, first Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love away from him as I took it away from those who are before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Isaiah 53, four through six, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one for whom, from, uh, from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him strict smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen. In those days... And at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented there before him. Wow. And these are just some of the passages that were written several hundred years before Jesus appeared. Friends, God was in control. When what happened to Jesus in the midst of his darkest hour on the cross took place. God was in control when Jesus won salvation for people of every tribe and tongue and nation. He was in control when Jesus rose from the dead. And he is in control in the midst of our dark times and uncertainties now too. And that's really what the gospel is tells us the incredible news that while we were in rebellion against God, he granted life through his dead, death and resurrection of Jesus. God has always been in control and he will always be in control. And we can have confidence that God will work for our good if we choose to trust him. You see, Paul knew that this good news was truly scandalous. It was unheard of. Nothing like it had ever happened before. And so after sharing this good news with the church in Corinth, he changes focuses and shares with them reasons why they should believe this good news. Let's read what Paul says next in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You see, I think a lot of times when we uh, we have this un- we have this incorrect understanding of faith and what it means in today's world. I think a lot of times people seem to think of faith as blind trust. That to have faith means that we take every single reasonable thought and we look at them. 
and then we take a match to it. In fact, some churches and Christians even praise this type of blind foolishness. But that's not what Paul taught, and that's not what we teach either. In fact, Paul does just the opposite of that in this section by giving us some reasons why we should believe this gospel. And in order to share with us what this gospel is, Paul points out that there were people who actually saw all of these events. And not only that, but many of them are still alive. And so Paul begins to share about all of the different eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. People had seen Jesus in the flesh after he had rose from the dead. With each group, he tells the people in Corinth about they're actually less likely to have wanted to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so their their testimony is actually that much more legitimate. But who are these eyewitnesses? Well, Paul gives us four, and so let's take a look at them. The first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were Jesus's inner circle. These were the 12 disciples, the one who had spent, ones who had spent uh, almost three years with Jesus. But are they really that valuable of an eyewitness? After all, doesn't it make sense that they would want to make Jesus into a figure who was larger than life? Wouldn't it make sense that they would want to lie about the resurrection, to lie about Jesus being God? Well, on the surface, that, that seems to make sense. But then you, think, you start to think about who these disciples were. They were a bunch of cowards. They abandoned Jesus in his time of need right before the cross. The entire book of Mark tells us story after story of how they didn't understand Jesus, how they were poor disciples, how they were more concerned with their own glory rather than God's glory. But when we look at the early church and the book of Acts, these cowards, these people who didn't understand anything about who Jesus was, were boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the crowds. We see that they suffered a great deal for this message. And in the end, 11 out of the 12 of them ended up dying for this message. If this was a giant hoax, you would think that at least one of them would have cracked. At least a few of them would have said, a hoax is not worth dying for. Unless they had seen something radical enough. To change their minds. Second group of eyewitnesses that Paul that, that Paul mentions here uh, to the resurrection were Jesus's followers. In fact, Paul tells us that about 500 people saw Jesus after he raised from the dead. See, back in high school and college, I, I had a little bit of a wild streak in me, um, and so we're actually going to have to cut this part out of uh, the podcast and not put this online because this is uh, this is confidential information. So we're all sworn to secrecy in here. But uh, I love pulling pranks. Uh, but the pranks I pulled weren't just on other students. I, I like to go big or go home, so I tended to pull pranks on the college or, or the school itself. So this one time in college, uh, me and a group of 10 or so other people, uh, we quote-unquote borrowed uh, all of the tables from our college cafeteria, and we hid them at another location on campus. Now, nothing was stolen. Everything was kept in perfect condition. They were just in a place that no one had any idea where they were. Uh, well, no one except for me and these other 10 guys, of course. And to this day, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that no one at the school actually knows who did it. And so, again, you know, you're sworn to secrecy. Uh, but imagine if we would have included the entire male student body, which was about 500 students. Uh, what, imagine if we would have included them in this process of pulling off this prank. The process would have gone much quicker. It actually took us eight hours to, to do this, and so lost a lot of sleep that night. And in fact, some of you may be saying, wow, this guy has no life if he's going to dedicate eight hours to uh, taking some tables and moving them and hiding them from the, from the school. But that's, a, that's another topic. We, we won't get into that. 
So uh, it took us all night to hide them with only 10 of us. It would have gone a lot faster if we had all 500 uh, students, uh, male students help us. But it would have also been much riskier because many more people would have known. And that way, many more people had the chance to blab about what had happened. You see, if the resurrection was made up, there's no way that 500 people would have been in on the conspiracy. Someone would have come forward and confessed that this whole thing was made up, that it was just Peter's idea, and that they should get a reward for confessing the whole thing was made up. There's no way that 500 people would have gone along with a scam like this, especially when it would cost them so much. Unless they had seen something radical enough to change their minds. The third group of eyewitnesses that, to the resurrection that Jesus that Paul mentions here uh, were Jesus' family members. You see, the James that Paul refers to here is actually Jesus' half-brother, uh, the son of, of Mary and Joseph. And for James to become a leader in the church after Jesus' death, which is what happens, uh, uh, it really speaks volumes to the power of witnessing the resurrected Christ. You see, before Jesus's resurrection, uh, we actually know that Jesus's family thought he was completely crazy. In fact, there's a story of his brothers coming to get Jesus early in his ministry because they wanted him to stop speaking crazy things because they thought he was nuts. They wanted him to stop embarrassing the family. But the, so the fact that they now believe what Jesus has done and said about who he is speaks volume to his resurrection. For those of you who have multiple children in your home, or for those of you who have a brother or sister, just know the way the ways that brothers and sisters act around one another. Just imagine for a second, one of your children saying that they are God. Now, even if they were the perfect child, the one they always got straight A's, you know, never stepped out of line even once. There's no way that the, the brothers and sisters, the siblings of that child would, would think that they were God, unless they had seen something radical enough to change their minds. Finally, Paul tells us one final eyewitness to the resurrected Christ, his enemy. See, before Paul was a Christian, his entire life was focused on destroying Christianity. He threw Christians in prison. He even approved of their murder. His personal mission was to see this thing snuffed out. And frankly, he was pretty good at what he did. But then something happened. He saw the, the Jesus that he was persecuting. You see, Paul's conversion and testimony is a powerful witness to the resurrection of Jesus. There's no way that Paul would have become a Christian on his own. It wasn't like he was on the fence, wafting to and back and forth between whether he should become a Christian and whether he shouldn't. And he finally decided to make that plunge. It wasn't a gradual conversion in his case. It was a radical transformation. There's no way that he would have changed his mind on his own. Unless... He had seen something radical enough to change his mind. The resurrection. See, today there are countless people who think that the resurrection didn't happen. But who's more trustworthy? An eyewitness or something, someone with a wild imagination like Dan Brown who lives nearly 2,000 years after these events have happened? 
okay, Jordan, you may be saying, I, I'm starting to see the validity of all of this stuff. But what does it mean? I think I understand the, the gospel, the fact that Jesus died on our behalf and rose from the dead as a part of God's plan to restore our relationship with him. But where do I go from there? And that's what Paul answers in this final question. Why, why is the gospel good news? Let's go ahead and read the end of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 9 through 11 here. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, that it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether it was then it was I or they, so they preached, so we preach, and so you believed. Friends, this gospel is good news because it replaces our despair with hope. You see, Paul knew that he wasn't worthy of a relationship with God after all the things that he had done. He had no chance of making it on on God's good side without a major intervention from God himself. Without the gospel, there was only despair in Paul's life, even if he wouldn't have recognized it. In the same way before Christ, there was only despair. We had no reason to hope. If we were expected to work our way to God on our own, we would have been out of luck. But when we hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has paid it all, we are given hope. We can hope that there is a happy ending, that we will have fellowship with God, that we will live the life that we were meant to live. Hope replaces despair. Second, the gospel is good news because it replaces all of our tireless working with rest. I imagine there are several of you here this morning who are bent on being a good person because that's what God wants from you. He wants you to be good enough. And once you hit that impossibly high standard, then you're in, you've made it. But be careful because if you don't keep it up, you'll lose that standard. You'll lose what you had. That's the opposite of what Paul states here. He points out that he works hard, growing in holiness, sharing the gospel, taking care of those who are less fortunate than he. But he ultimately, but ultimately, it is the grace of God that does all of this. We no longer have to work for our salvation. We can rest in the grace that God has for us. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't grow, but we do so out of gratitude, not out of compulsion. Friends, our working is replaced with rest. And finally, death is replaced with life. Take one more look at at verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 15. What does Paul say? He says, Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand. Notice those last few words. In which you stand. You see, the gospel is not just something that gets you in the front gate, something that brings you all of the way home. That's what our final truth is this morning. The gospel replaces death with life. You see, Jesus' resurrection is a foreshadowing of our own resurrection. Because Jesus conquered the grave, we who trust in him have that same promise. Yes, each and every one of us will die someday unless Jesus comes back before that. Yes, it may look like the grave, like sin and death have won. But just like Jesus, we know that that's not the end of the story. 
that we will rise again and that death will be replaced with life because of what he has done for us. And that's really what our text is about this morning. The scandalous, radical, amazing, transformative grace of God that he offers to us on the cross is enough. It's enough for our salvation. It's enough for our fears, for our doubts, for our weak faiths. It's enough because Jesus has paid it all and the grave has been defeated. I'm going to close uh, this morning just with a, with a poem that I wrote a few months ago. And this poem is actually written uh, based off of Isaiah 53, which is that passage, uh, one of those passages from the Old Testament that I read earlier. And um, this entire passage in Isaiah 53 essentially tells us the gospel hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth. So I just want you to, to read this story about first his crucifixion and the horror of that. The fact that he bore all of our sins on the cross. But then also, also the ultimate victory that Jesus has through his resurrection. So just uh, just want to read this for you real quick. Behold the servant lifted high to the cross, condemned to die. Rejected by man, by his own, ascended to God to make him known. The ways of God so high above, and the servant seeing the Father's love. Abandoned, rejected, and despised on the cross. We hid our eyes. But why, we cry, is this his end? A people for God, his death to win. The sin of all who wandered and strayed on his back was willingly laid. The needed sacrifice, the obedient son, the lamb of God, the innocent one. Death hastens. The grave has come. Mocked by those his death has won. Through his death. Wrath satisfied. We may live, for he had died. Take up your throne, for you overcome. Enjoy your prize, God the Son. Friends, Jesus has overcome through his death and through his resurrection. And because he has overcome, we too can overcome through the radical, scandalous grace that he offers us, which is enough for our salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that grace. We thank you for that love that you show us on the cross. And we thank you for the promise of future resurrection that you overcame sin and death, that you were victorious over the grave. And God, because of that, we have confidence that you, uh, because of, of that, we have confidence that we also will be victorious one day. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.